which is the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, just before I began working on the message that I want to preach tonight, I um, found a an article. I, I can't remember exactly where it was, but I think it was in the in the Santa Rosa paper. But it was about people that have uh, have been preparing for the return of Christ on May 21st of this year. I've mentioned a few times in our study that uh, Harold Camping's group from Family Radio has predicted with infallible certainty that Christ is coming back on the 21st of this year. And that news has spread across the country, and there are people that are preparing for this. And these are folks that think that it's possible that you can calculate the time of Christ coming right down to the very day on our calendar. And I've wondered what people do that believe this. I, I wonder if all of these people that are preparing to leave on May 21st, if they still have their vacation time set up this summer, if they bothered to do that. And I wonder what they're going to do with all their retirement money, whether they pulled all of that out and begun to spend that up. You know, if I knew the, the exact time that Jesus was going to come back, I would take all of my money out of the bank which isn't very much, it would make a whole lot of difference, but I'd take all of my money out of the bank, I'd give it to missionaries, and I'd tell them to, to get the word out to as many people as possible that Jesus is coming back. I wouldn't need the money, because I'd, I'd be gone, so why not give it away? And so I wonder also if uh, Family Radio is raising any money for their budget year beyond May 21st of this year. And I suspect very strongly that uh, even though they say he's coming back, they plan on having the radio station open on May 22nd if he doesn't. But we don't know the exact time that Jesus is going to come back, but we are preparing for it, and we are, we're going to keep working for it, and we'll keep studying about it. We'll keep uh, right on thinking about the Lord when he comes, and whenever time he comes, that's going to be the right time. So we've been looking into the subject for the past few weeks, and actually our, our entire study in the book of Revelation is to get us to this particular place in Scripture which we call the apex of the book, and actually it's the apex of the Bible because this is the event that brings heaven and earth back together again. Now, the Bible was written to explain to us what went wrong. And it took all of about one chapter or less to explain to us what went wrong. And then all the rest of the Bible is explaining how God's going to fix it and get everything right again. So that's the subject of hundreds of different, different chapters in the Bible. So we're going to look a little bit further into this again tonight. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. We'll start reading here. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations." And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's our fourth message on the return of the king. So let me just give you a, a little bit of information to catch you up on the previous points. Uh, we started with the, the anticipation of Christ's return. 
And that was our opportunity to go back and look at some scriptures that show us how many times that the second coming is spoken of in the, in, in the Bible. Because next to faith, uh, this subject is spoken more of any other that we have in scripture. And I suppose that it would be appropriate, uh, would be appropriate because once we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we do begin to live in the expectation of his return. And we've seen in our study of 1 John that when we abide in Christ and when we do have this hope in us that he's coming again, when that is ingrained into us, we live in that hope and it shapes our lives. We live in holiness so that we will not be ashamed when Jesus comes back. Next, we talked about the appearance of Christ. And we're going to discuss next week how he appears visually to the eye. But this part of the discussion wasn't about that, but rather it was about the phases of Christ's return and the suddenness of it and how that he's coming to conquer his enemies and then he will bring in the kingdom. Now, chapter 19 that we're reading here is not about the rapture. That's what Harold Camping's group is looking for and expecting on May 21st. The rapture will come. But it is a, it's just a spark that sets off all the many other events uh, that relate to the second coming. So the first phase of his coming is the rapture, and we're looking forward to that. But the second phase of his coming is, is the part that the Bible spends more time on. This is what you find more scripture about. And that's when Christ actually comes to the earth. He sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives, and there he begins to reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Now, most often in Scripture, the first phase and the second phase of Christ's coming are rolled into one big picture, and then the emphasis becomes the kingdom that God is going to set up on the earth. And that is really the focus of the entire book of Revelation, to get us to that point. And the rapture is not even mentioned in the book of Revelation. We're dealing mainly with the coming kingdom of the Lord. Thirdly, we talked about the appellations of Christ. And this was the subject of last week's message. Uh, We spoke of the names of Christ that we find in this passage. And one of his names we discovered is a mystery. Uh, Verse number 12 says that there is a name that no one knows but Jesus himself. We don't know what the name is. Uh, Probably John saw that name written, but it was a name that was far too majestic, far too above human comprehension for him to understand. So we have a mystery here, and perhaps this is the type of mystery that heaven is. Remember, Paul was taken up into heaven, and he was able to get a glimpse of of what heaven was like, but when he came back, he was unable to tell anyone what he saw. And it's interesting, I think, that in 1 John, the Apostle John says, we know what we shall be. We don't know, rather, what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So heaven is a great mystery to us. Later in chapter 21, John gives us a description of heaven, but I'm convinced and I'm sure that he uh, couldn't even touch the magnificence of that place. And what we read here in Revelation about heaven in chapter 21 is what we call an anthropomorphism, or, or John explains it in terms that humans can understand because we simply could not relate it in terms of God. It's too far above us. So Christ has a hidden name that's incomprehensible, but there are other names of his that we do know. Uh, They describe his characteristics like he is faithful and true. It says here that he is the word of God, and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So those are things that we do understand. At least in some measure we understand them. And when we get to heaven, when we see Christ face to face, we'll understand them far better. Well, we want to move on now tonight, and we want to look into 
another part of this passage. And this, I think, is probably one of the most troubling parts when we talk about the, the second coming of Christ. And this is the anger of Christ, his anger. And this aspect of Christ's character is, is one that many, many people will not even acknowledge. What they cannot imagine is that we could have an angry God. I mean, our, our minds have been so filled with the idea that God loves everybody, that God sympathizes with everyone, and that God is going to overlook sin, and God is never going to punish anyone. We hear that so much that people do not really understand that God's anger is actually a function of his love. Now, that might be hard for you to put together. Uh, how can God be angry? And how can God be a loving God at the same time? Well, we have to understand what the love of God has done. God's love overcomes the enmity between God and man. It takes sinners that are hostile to him, and it changes, uh, God changes their hearts, and he causes them to be willingly obedient to him. So they come to him repentance and faith, which shows us that God's love is active in actually doing something for us. Now, most people think that God's love is much like human love that it's merely an emotion, and that's the way that most people look at their love or love between humans. It's merely an emotion that we have. And so they have this picture in their mind that God is up in heaven and he's crying and he's sobbing because men do not love him. He so much desires to be loved and he's done so much for man, he simply cannot understand why when he's done so much that people still refuse his love. And so they think that God sent Christ to the earth to die for our sins and he demonstrated his love and therefore the demonstration of that love alone should be enough to cause us to love God back. And really that is the bane of this mixed up evangelical world and that's how Christ is taught to most people that God loves you but God is helpless to do anything for you unless you love him enough or that you're good enough to love him back. Well, that's really a hopelessly mixed-up idea. It, it cannot give us a right understanding of God's love or of God's wrath. Now, according to John in 1 John, God's love bestowed makes us the sons of God. Uh, God's love is not a dead end unless we should mix something of our own with it. God's love is actually the impetus for God's grace, and it's God's love that causes him to bring us out of spiritual death into spiritual life. So God's love bestowed is active upon us, making us to become sons of God. And then the objects of God's love are given all spiritual blessings in Christ. They're given salvation in him. They're given their justification. They're given hope. They're promised that they're going to, they're promised that they're going to, to rise from the grave. They're given glorification. And in short, they're given the promise that they will be completely delivered from the misery of a sin-cursed world. Well, in order for that to happen, it means that God must destroy everything that afflicts his people. Since we are in him, everything that is against God is also against his people. And God is angry about that. God is angry at anyone who would hurt his little ones. He's angry at those that would usurp his authority and defy his kingship. And so the Bible teaches that God is going to come to this earth with vengeance. And so his anger turns out to be a necessary consequence of his love. And so it means this, that he's angry at Satan. He's angry at Satan's followers because he loves us so much that he's going to protect his own righteousness and our happiness at all costs. 
So you have to really understand the objects of God's love. And you have to understand why God's anger would be kindled against his enemies. So you have two sides of this. God loves his own character, and God loves his people that worship him. And so that means he has a double-edged anger against those that are his and our common enemy. So they are enemies of his righteousness, and they're enemies of his people. Now listen to what John says in 1 John 3, verse 1. He said, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now you see what John says? He says the world does not know Christ, and therefore it doesn't know us. It doesn't understand those who are his people. He loved us, and we're in him, and his love is not settled upon those who will not believe on him and do not believe in him. And, and so we see if God's love is, is indiscriminate, then we couldn't have a loving God and an angry God because it makes no sense for God to be angry and vengeful upon people that he loves. And, and if he is, if God can be both, then we need to be very careful about God. We need to watch out for him because God could turn on us at any moment. But we know that God is not that way. God is not schizophrenic. The Bible says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if you are one of his, he loved you from the foundation of the world, and he'll love you all the way into eternity when this world as we know it now has completely passed away. So you see then why we believe in the doctrines of grace? I mean, if you want to put it very simply, nothing fits without it. You're hopeless to understand God's love or to understand God's wrath unless you have this frame of reference to the immutable plan of God from before the foundation of the world. Now there, I've just given you sort of a little primer, which is uh, uh, not by any means does that exhaust this subject, but we're filled with eternal wonder at God's gracious plan of salvation, how that God works out all of these intricate details to bring us to salvation, going down through all these years of history, and he brings us right here to Revelation 19. And how he does all of that and works all of that together is simply too much for us to fathom. And it's also too much for us to fathom that anyone could possibly believe that human response is the deciding factor between heaven and hell. You know, I'm thankful for this, that God is the only deciding factor between heaven and hell. Because without his love bestowed upon us in order that we might become the sons of God... There is no one in the human race who would ever have any hope. And so Christ would come back to this earth, but he'd only come back with anger. And he wouldn't come back with the saints because he wouldn't have any. All of us are enemies against him. And so what God would do, what Christ would do, is to come back with a boatload of angry angels, and he would destroy everything upon the earth in his heated passion. So Christ does come with anger. There is no doubt about that. But his anger is directed towards those who are his enemies and are our enemies. Now, we want to observe his anger for just a few minutes tonight. We see this in verse 12 and, verse fi and in verse 15. And in verse number 12, it is, it's described here as the flame of fire. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. His eyes were as a flame of fire. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel had a similar vision of Christ. There it says, Then I lifted up mine eyes, and behold, and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. 
His body also was like the burl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And then also when John got his first glimpse of Jesus here in the Revelation, in chapter 1, he noted the eyes of Christ. He said, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. You know, whenever we look at someone, we usually look directly into the eyes. And I don't know why we do that, but I I suppose that our first impression is formed when we look into someone's eyes. And uh, the eyes often tell you a lot about a person. When their eyes are droopy, then we know that a person is sad. Maybe you can look at me tonight and see I'm not all that wide awake, and that means Pastor Smith must be sick or something, which is true. And then we see people that are wide-eyed, and we say they're wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, and that means they're vibrant, they're happy, and they're ready to go. And there are even experts that read the eyes. Uh, Policemen are taught that when they uh, interview someone, they look very closely at their eyes. And a direction that, that someone looks when they're asked a question can often tell whether that person is telling the truth or telling a lie. Well, when you look into the eyes of Christ, they also tell a lot about him. Here it says the eyes are like a flame of fire. And one of the things that speaks of is the penetrating gaze of Christ. And that is that Christ knows who you are, and he knows exactly what you're thinking. Scripture describes him as the omniscient one. Uh, Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And so there is no one that escapes the penetrating eyes of Christ. There's nothing hidden that he doesn't know about. Now, much of the time, as Christians, we act as if Christ doesn't know anything at all, as if everything that we do is a secret. You know, when I was young, uh, whenever I wanted to do something wrong, I made sure my dad wasn't around, made sure he wasn't looking at me. And in school, if you're going to shoot spitballs through a straw... You wait till the teacher turns her back. You don't do it in her presence because you know that you're going, to get, you're going to get punished for that. Well, the thing about Christ is he sees all the spitballs. I mean, you may not think he sees, but he sees everything. Christ knows every second of every day of your life. And so you needn't think that you're going to get away, from, get away with something. All sin has consequences. And God tells us that he's going to reward, reward us, uh, reward sin accordingly. And then these eyes as a flame of fire where it's probably most pertinent to what we're talking about tonight, it speaks of his anger. Now, when we say that someone is angry, we say they're hot-headed. And and I don't know a better way to say this, but that fiery eyes mean that Christ is hot on the trail against sin and those who perpetrate it. God is angry at the wicked every day. That's what the psalm says. But we also have to remember that God's anger is a holy anger. It's a righteous anger. You remember the story of how Christ drove the money changers out of the temple. And the Bible says he fashioned a, a whip out of cords, and he drove those people out of the temple. Was he wrong to do that? Well, no, he wasn't, because that was his righteous character that shone through. Not to be angry at sin, that would be wrong. And not to tell people that God is angry at their sins is wrong. Jonathan Edwards' greatest sermon, perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached on American soil was the uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And when you have preachers who don't want to preach about God's anger against sin, and they don't want to preach about hell because that's too negative, it's too scary, it's too depressing, if preachers will not preach like that, they are actually sinning against God. I mean, it, it shows how little that they truly know about God. And to put it bluntly, there is no preacher who has the authority to preach unless he tells the whole counsel of the Word of God. You have to tell it all. You have to talk about how God saves us from sin. There's no question about that. And speak about God's love and, and converting a sinner such as we are. But you also have to tell people about the consequences of their sin. There is a hell that we're saved from. There is eternal punishment that we're saved from. And not to preach all of God's word is a sin against God. So you have these people that stand in pulpits today, and as Jeremiah said way back in the Old Testament, the false prophets were saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah spoke against it, and also Isaiah. He said, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And so people are never going to understand salvation until they understand the consequences of their sin. God is angry about it. And you'll never understand what you need to be saved from, or even the fact that you need to be saved, unless somebody tells you there is a, an eternal death in the fires of hell for those who don't know Christ. And the, the, the interesting, or one of the great things about Jesus is the way that he taught, because he never backed off of this subject. You know, people are always talking about the things that Jesus said, and you don't hear too many people say, well, Jesus was angry about things, or Jesus said a lot about hell. But in fact, he did. When he finished his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he gave four illustrations of death and hell. If you remember this, he said, Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And he said, Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. He said, And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And then that famous story about the wise man and the foolish man, the one who built his house upon the rock and the other who built his house upon the sand. Jesus said, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And the sense of that passage is Jesus is there speaking about the destruction of hell. That is the main point of his, of his little illustration. And then John the Baptist, you remember, he said, And now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And of course, there, he's not talking about trees. That's a metaphor. He's talking about people. He's talking about their lives. And if they don't bring forth fruits of righteousness by knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, then he says they'll be hewn down and cast into the fire. So you follow the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and you go straight through the New Testament and you'll always find this. The teaching is the same. God is angry at sin. He is angry at sinners. And these eyes, like a flame of fire, will penetrate and finally burn them in the literal fires of hell. Now, thank the Lord there's a way to escape that and it's not hard. It only takes belief in Christ. Now, there's some people who would say, well, you know, Pastor Smith, that's way too harsh. Why do you talk about things like this? So why don't you give us our Jesus back? Give us our Jesus back. I mean, the one who has the blue eyes and the dovey look and the long flowing locks. Give us our Jesus back. Do you know if I give you that Jesus back, you'll never recognize him when he comes because that's not the Jesus that's coming. 
If you look here at verses 17 and 18 in the 19th chapter, you see what the angel says? And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And folks, you cannot get to that scripture, you cannot get to that scene without a Jesus who has eyes like a flame of fire. Now, if you look at verse number 15 of our text, it says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. Now, the second part of his anger that we want to look at is the fierceness of his wrath. Now, you see the word fierceness there? That means passion. It means a heated passion. It's like when you're so angry about something that you're fuming about it. It means to be breathing hard. You ever have somebody get mad at you? I mean, really mad at you, and you go up to them, and you kind of saunter up, and you say, are you mad at me? And that person says, yes, I'm mad at you. But just the fact that you ask, that just sort of calms things down and you start to get along with one another. Well, you can forget about that when it comes with, to God. Nobody's going to ask God, are you mad at me? They're not going to get the chance. Because here the scripture says that God is heated up with passion. He's fuming mad. His wrath is fierce. I want to call your attention to something that Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, knowing therefore, listen, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Now there, uh, Paul says, we know the terror of the Lord. And I realize there are some people that have varying interpretations of what Paul means here. Some say, well, the terror of the Lord, that means that, uh, that Paul had a reverential fear of God. In, in his own self, he, he respected the awesome duty that he had of, of preaching the word of God, of preaching the gospel, and he knew that someday he was going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of how he presented the gospel of Christ. And I believe there's truth to that. MacDonald and MacArthur both agree with that. That's their interpretation. But it seems to me that what we have here is better suited towards the terror of the lost, meeting God in judgment. And that's what gave Paul the strongest incentive to go out and tell people about Jesus. The strongest motive that he has to give people the gospel is because of the terrible consequences of not knowing Christ. And there are many, many Old Testament passages that repeat this assertion that God is coming to bring vengeance upon his enemies. And anybody that stands in the way gets mowed down, stomped on like grapes, if you want to put it in the terminology that he uses here, he says he'll smite them and then trample out their blood. Now, we've already looked at that a couple of times in the book, and there's no way that I can take these kinds of verses and pretty them up for you. I, I can't put a, put a flower behind Jesus' ear right here and, and tell you, you know, that he's really a sweet guy when he's coming in this way. I mean, he is righteous when he comes in his anger, and you have to get this picture of Jesus. Now, in the rapture, the saints are going to go up and and then after God's people are taken out of this world, then comes this terrible time of tribulation. Seven years that are going to culminate in the worst scene of all, at least for those that are left upon the earth. And, and that's the big event of the second coming of Christ. 
It's the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth. And in order for that to happen, every enemy of God has to be brought into submission. And so the fierceness of God's wrath gives us the extent of the carnage that you see there in verses 17 and 18. Now, I don't know, some of you might be ready to quit on me now. And, well, well, this is just too hard. Uh, and, And really, folks, I haven't even gotten to Armageddon yet. I mean, we've alluded to it, and we've kind of danced around it and talked about it a little bit, but we really haven't gotten to that terrible time of Armageddon yet. And it's the result of the fierceness of God's wrath. And then we find something else in verse number 15 that accentuates this and highlights it again, and this is the rule with the rod. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now, really, there seems to be some mitigation of the sternness of Christ's rule because of the word in the original language here that's used for rule. The word actually means to shepherd. And so we might have the idea that Christ is going to gently nudge his people with his staff in order to keep the sheep in line. And so that would probably make you wonder, then why does he need a rod of iron? Why doesn't he use just just the old shepherd's stick? Well, he doesn't because iron represents power. Now, one of the uses of a shepherd's staff was in order to protect the sheep. The sheep. When, when a wild animal would come and he'd try to get into the sheepfold, the shepherd would take his staff and he would beat that animal off with his staff. Now, the iron staff here represents what we would call overkill. I mean, this is emphatic. And the picture that we have here comes from Psalm chapter 2. Now, turn your Bible there, if you would, for a minute, and we're going to read the entire chapter of Psalm 2. And you get the picture here in Psalm 2, uh, uh, the complete picture of Christ. Now, we do know the Psalms present Christ over and over again as being a shepherd. And who, who can forget Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. And what a wonderful psalm that that is. And we take comfort in that. We take hope in it. But we also have to remember that the shepherd has a responsibility to protect the sheep. And he's not nice to the wolf. Now, if you look here in Psalm 2, we have the complete picture of what Christ is going to do. It says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Now here he's talking about all the kings of the world that rise up against Christ and they try to overthrow him, really leading us into the very same picture that we see in Revelation 19. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. There he's talking about the coming kingdom, the millennial kingdom. The whole earth is his possession. He controls it all. Verse 10, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and he perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. So there we have the complete picture. The iron rod is not there to put a knot on somebody's head. The iron rod is not the wooden staff. This is used to break them in pieces, it says, like a fragile clay pot. And so God's people will go into the millennial kingdom, And for all those lost people that are not killed at the Battle of Armageddon, they'll go into the kingdom 
And they only have one chance to step out of line. And then God comes down and lowers that rod of iron on top of their heads. And God's judgment is swift and severe. It's immediate. There are no second chances and there is no leniency in his kingdom. Now, I've told you before that I really don't see how the millennial kingdom is going to be fun and games for lost people. Now, sure, the whole time is going to be great economically. Uh, There is no hunger in that time. Food grows abundantly. Streets will be safe. You'll even be able to walk down streets in in Oakland or Richmond at night. Never have to worry about getting attacked by anybody. I mean, because righteousness is going to reign. But what is it that lost people most like to do? If your heart hasn't been changed, what do you want to do? Well, lost people don't want to praise God. They, they aren't interested in worshiping God. I mean, sinners like to do what? They like to sin. There's hostility that exists between them and God, and this hostility is inbred into us. We're all born with that. We are by nature, the Word of God says, the enemies of God. But those that are saved, they're going to come back and reign with Christ, and they'll love every minute of the kingdom. Christ is ruling in righteousness. Christ won't have to worry about us. And so he's not talking about ruling us with a rod of iron. But lost people are different. The only way that you can keep them in line is to make them do what they don't want to do. And that's to stop sinning. So how is that person going to be happy? I mean, these are people we're talking about ruled with a rod of iron. And so are sinners going to be happy when all their vices are gone? Are they going to be happy when the liquor trade is gone and that stopped and all the casinos have been shut down and pornography has been stamped out? Are they going to be happy with that? And what about this, turning on the television, every TV show that you watch is a worship service. There's nothing more miserable than a lost person who has to spend all of his time with Christians. You know why? Because he sticks out like a sore thumb. Now, at this present hour, in this age, it's the people of God that stick out. And here the tables are going to be turned. Uh, They're going to be the peculiar ones and not us. And they'll get a taste of what it's like to be a a fish out of water like we are in this wicked environment today. So they're not like righteous people. They're not going to enjoy the millennial kingdom. And you think about it. Does this scripture change? Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 3. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Now, is there anything in Scripture that says those verses are going to be changed and they no longer apply? Well, there is no such thing as, as a good lost person. There is no such thing as lost people love loving to live in the light. And so I don't understand how anybody could think that the millennial kingdom is going to be fun and games for everybody. Lost people will have 1,000 years of misery living in the light. It's like lifting up that rock and finding all those bugs underneath. They get exposed to the light and they scurry everywhere because a bug would rather be in the dark and lost people would rather be in their, in their little dens and their nightclubs and their taverns and their joints because they do not love the light of Christ. Now that's the picture that we get of Christ in this passage. God is angry at sin and his anger against sin will never stop. It won't stop at least until sin is gone, and there's nothing anymore to be angry about. And until then, God's going to keep it up. And then when these thousand years are expired, as we read here in in chapter 20, uh, God is going to pop the lid off, and then these people are going to be able to express themselves one more time, 
And they'll take another crack at this. They'll try to revolt against God, but then God just lowers the boom one last time. And so in chapter 20, we find Satan loosed. He gathers up all the lost people from everywhere. They, they've been itching to get back into sin. They're anxious to throw off God's yoke, this rod of iron. And before they ever get a chance to assert themselves and to organize against God, God just speaks the word, and like that, it's all over with, and God burns this whole world up. Well, what would you call that? Well, I think you would call it another example of God's fierce anger. They're burned up. And then the next scene we see they're brought to judgment, and then they're done away with forever. And then you know what happens when, when all of this ends, when lost people are finally in that place of judgment where they're, they're locked down and they can, they can affect us no longer? Well, then God's anger is locked away because then nobody's ever going to have to see it again. Hell is going to contain all of the anger that you want there, but all apart from that is God's love and the light of uh, living in the light of God's love. So this is really God's love for his people. He delivers them forever from sin's tyranny, and he loves them. And this is how you find anger and love in the same God. You have to know the difference between whom he loves and whom he hates and those that he is at peace with and those that he is angry with. There's a difference between the two. And folks, that difference was settled before the foundation of the world. Thank the Lord if you know Jesus Christ, because you don't have to experience any of this anger that I've talked about tonight. That's all it takes to escape God's anger. The way to escape God's wrath is to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins. And when you do, you are at peace with God. And that's where every one of us needs to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word tonight. And what a a great passage that we've had before us these few weeks. And as we will look into it again further, uh, we thank you, Lord, that there is salvation provided in Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that the Bible speaks of anger against sin and anger against wickedness. But we know that Jesus Christ came into this world to die on the cross to take the anger of God away. And Lord, we know that if we put our faith and our trust in you, that that anger, that that punishment of hell has been taken away from us by the death of Jesus Christ. Bless us as we contemplate on these things and as we look forward to your coming. We just thank you, Lord, for all of this tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.